If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. We're going to be looking at verses 47 down through verse 56 this morning. My son commented the other day that uh, we can now start playing Christmas music, right? <laughs> Halloween is over. Get it out. Um, but it is amazing. We're already in November, and uh, I want to encourage you uh, to think about as you begin another year pretty soon about your daily Bible reading plan. You need a plan to read through God's Word. And many of you already have a plan. You already have a system that you use. That's great. That's awesome. But so many of you probably don't have a daily Bible reading plan. And you've heard me say this over and over again. There's probably nothing of a greater significance in your spiritual walk than reading the Bible every day. Um, in fact, I've told my wife, I want three words on my gravestone, read your Bible. Read your Bible. And so you need a Bible reading plan. What we've done is we've made some daily walk Bibles available to you out in our foyer. We're not making any money off this. This is cheaper than what you can get them online. We're simply doing this to give you no excuse. You have the ability to go back there, pick one of those up. And I know you can use the apps. That's great. That's awesome. I still believe in having the physical word of God in front of me. Um, I think there's something to that. But, but this method of walking through the Bible, it gives you a devotional with each, um, uh, each passage that you read through. What's really neat about this is if every day you use this, you can jot some little notes, maybe something you're praying about in the margin. And then after you use it, it's a Bible that you can keep and maybe later give to a, a son, a daughter, a grandson, a granddaughter. You can pass along and they'll have your notes as you prayed and walked through uh, God's word. So um, it's also, you could give it as a gift, somebody in your life that you would like to encourage them to read the, the word of God. It's a great way to walk through the Bible. And uh, I also think it's neat that if you're doing that, me and faith, that's what we use. We, uh, we use the Daily Walk Bible as our devotional guide. And, and uh, I think it's neat that a lot of us together as a church, we're reading through the Bible together uh, as we walk through the year. So I'd encourage you to consider that. Well, this morning, Matthew 26, verses 47 through verse 56. You remember last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, there we saw Christ. and We saw him as perfect man and perfect God. He is very God and he is very man. And as a man there in the garden, at the prospect of drinking the full cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to, he recoils. You remember in that moment, he prays, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And so we see perfect humanity and we see perfect submission to the Father's will. And now it's settled. And what will happen now as we walk through this passage and many more as we lead up to the cross where Christ will die, we will see Christ move forward, not as an unwilling participant. It's not like he's got to be drugged to the cross. We'll see him go to the cross not as a martyr. He's not dying as a martyr. We will see Christ not as a, a victim held in the grip of dark forces. No, we will see the very Son of God move forward as a champion, as a strong man to run his course. He will move forward intentionally and purposefully and willingly to die for your sins and mine to provide a way of salvation. In other words, as he goes that cross, we got to remember that, yes, he is 
uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But we also got to see him as the perfect Son of God who dies a substitutionary death for us. And he's in total control. No one's going to take his life. He's going to lay it down of his own initiative. So with that in mind, uh, let's pray together. Then we're going to just work our way through this passage. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would calm our hearts. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would remove any, any distractions this morning. God, I pray that you'd speak to all of us. I pray for those, I know there's so many that are probably in this room this morning, they've read this story so many times. It's so familiar to us that um, we would be, become dull to its significance. And Lord, I pray that you would refresh our sense of awe and wonder at the perfect Lamb of God who willingly died for our sins. And I pray if there's anybody here this morning that maybe they've never read this, that this is new, it's unfamiliar to them. I pray that they would see the beauty of Christ's love towards them. Father, speak to us. Make your word alive today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We see there in verse 47, it says, While he was still speaking, meaning right after the garden incident, while he's still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. It's probably around midnight. It's very late. Judas, you'll remember, he left the meal, the Last Supper, and he went to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, they've probably done a lot of back work, um, They've probably even prepared Pilate, that probably tonight, Pilate, be ready in the morning early. We're going to bring a man to you. They probably also have the temple guard ready to go. They probably have somebody ready to dispatch the Roman cohort that will come with, with Judas and these chief priests. So he goes to them and he says, I know where he's at. And more than likely, he led them to the upper room because that's where Jesus was. But once they got to the upper room, he's not there. So what is he going to do? He knows where he often goes. He would often go to the garden. And so Judas leads these men to the garden, and there they encounter Christ. It says he brought with, them a, with him a large crowd. And so in this crowd, you've got chief priests, you've got the scribes, you've got the elders, you've got Pharisees included in this group, all coming to arrest Jesus. Uh, John's gospel, and as I walk through this, just know... Um, sometimes I might mention something and you would say, well, that's not in Matthew. Well, if it's not in the Matthew account, it's probably in Luke or Mark or John. You have to kind of put them all together. If I mention something that's not in Mark, Luke, or John, or Matthew, come tell me because I made something up. and We don't want to do that, all right? But more than likely, I'll try to tell you if it's outside the Matthew gospel, but I might not always remember. But in, in John's gospel, it says there's a cohort, a Roman cohort, which would have been uh, 500 men. So imagine this. Most commentators agree that you would have had over 600 men with clubs and swords and torches coming to arrest Jesus. And 600, kind of put that in context, would be probably more than, but at least this lower level right here. That many people gathered against Christ. And it's, it's, it's significant that we note that it's that it's both Jews and Gentiles that come to arrest Jesus. There's a lot, as we'll move through this, that would see this, these passages as anti-Semitic. They're anti-something, anti, anti anti-moral, anti anti-human, 
because you've got all of humanity, you've got all the world, Romans, Gentiles, and Jews, gathered together against Christ. This is a picture of fallen man. This is uh, Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. This is fallen man saying, we don't want Christ. We don't care that he's powerful. We don't care that he appears to be God. We don't want anybody telling us what to do, and we want him out of our lives. Does that sound familiar today? So they want him gone. So look with me, verse 48. Now he who is betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him. It's interesting. Judas has to give them a sign. Why would Judas have to give them a sign? Uh, Because Jesus was nondescript. Meaning there was nothing about Jesus' physical appearance that would have uh, caused him to stand out amongst a crowd. Um, you know, the author of uh, or Isaiah says, Isaiah 53, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There was, there was nothing about Christ. Um, even in Philippians chapter 2, it says he humbled himself. And being found in appearance as a man, he became a bondservant. Christ in his incarnation, he doesn't come, in, he didn't come to earth in, in a crown, a robe, uh, with all his glory. He comes as common, ordinary man. So Judas has to give him a sign so that they know which one to arrest. And in verse 49, immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. It's a common greeting uh, for, a, for a rabbi and a teacher to greet each other uh, with a kiss. So this was common. This was ordinary. And, and I believe that Judas, he greets Jesus in this way uh, to disguise his disloyalty, to disguise his betrayal so that maybe everybody else wouldn't think of him as the betrayer. Um, if that weren't the case, I think if that wasn't what he was doing, then why wouldn't he just walk up to Jesus and say, there he is, there's the one, betray him. I think he's trying to disguise his betrayal so that if somebody were to ask him later, why'd you, well, I wasn't really betraying him. I was just greeting him like, I don't know where these guys came from and what they're doing. I'm just greeting him as as I normally greet him. So he's trying to disguise his betrayal. But what do we know? You can't hide anything from Jesus. You can't hide your heart from Christ. Jesus knows exactly what's occurring here. And so all his outward signs of affection and worship can't hide his heart. And uh, I just so happen to believe there's a lot of Christians out there that are seeking to hide the sin and the disobedience of their heart with a lot of outward expressions of affection and worship. And if that's you this morning, you need to know you might be able to fool a lot of people, but you can't fool Jesus. He looks not at the outward appearance, but he looks at your heart. And so Jesus, Jesus looks at Judas, verse 50, and Jesus said to him, friend. Isn't that interesting? He calls him friend. And uh, if you don't see the love of grace and grace of Christ in this as we move forward towards even Judas, he knew everything about Judas, knew all the betrayal that had already occurred and all the betrayal that would come, and he still calls him. I think he looked him in the eye and he said, friend. In other words, I still love you. Luke's gospel tells us he recoils and says, Judas, you betray me with a kiss. Judas, is this how it's going to go down? I loved you. You're one of mine. You're going to betray me in this kind of way. And it says, he, he said to him, friend, do what you've come for. And then they came and they laid hands on him and seized him. Now, John's gospel tells us that something else occurs before uh, they laid hands on him. I want you to see it, so turn with me to John 18. I think you need to see this. 
There's a powerful moment in the narrative that Matthew does not include. But in John 18, verses uh, 4 through 8, John 18, verses 4 through 8, John 18, beginning verse 4, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. So before they come to lay hands on Christ, Jesus asks them, who are you seeking? Who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus says, I am he. The New American Standard adds in that word he. Literally, Jesus responds by saying, I am. What is the name of God in the Old Testament when Moses, you remember, asked God, what, who should I tell them sent me? What's your name? What does God say? You tell him, I am. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. We, we pronounce it with the vowels. It's, it's Jehovah. But that Hebrew word Yahweh is the combination of three Hebrew words, meaning I was, I am, and I will be. And you put them all together in a name, and they create the perfect name for the perfect deity who is eternal, who is God, and who never changes. Jehovah, Yahweh. And right here, Jesus pronounces the divine name of God. And at the pronouncement of that divine name, they draw back and they fall to the ground. I would have loved to have known what they saw at that moment. I wonder if they didn't get a glimpse of the glory of Christ similar to the, the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John got a picture of Christ in his glory. I don't know what happened. All I know is that Christ announces his divine name and they draw back and they fall to the ground. What a powerful picture that creation falls in the presence of their creator. That is, Paul will say in Philippians, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess of those who are in the earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I think that this moment right here anticipates that final moment that one day will come. And Jesus is sending a very clear message to all those who have gathered to arrest him. And the message is, I'm going to the cross only because I choose to go. That you may think you have power, but you don't have any power. That no one is going to take my life, I'm going to lay it down of my own initiative. That there's a picture here that as Christ goes to the cross, it's not, he's not arrested because the Romans were more powerful than him. 
He's arrested because he allows himself to be in submission to the Father's will. You remember before Pilate, Pilate looks at him as he's silent and says, don't you know I have the authority to release you or kill you? And you remember what Jesus says? You'd have no authority over me except that which is given to you by my Father. You've got no authority. You think you're in control, but you're not in control. I couldn't help but think of uh, 2 Kings chapter 1. The king of Israel in 2 Kings, he's mad at Elijah because Elijah's prophesied that they're going to die. And that wasn't a good prophecy, and he didn't like it. So he says, go arrest Elijah. So they send a battalion of soldiers to go arrest Elijah. He's up on a hill, and they say, oh, man of God, come down from your mountain. Elijah says, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down and consume you. Well, guess what happens? Fire comes down and consumes them. They, they get, well, send another battalion. They go out, oh, man of God, come down from your hill. He says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down and consume you. Boom, they're gone. They send a third battalion. The captain goes out to Elijah and says, pretty please, would you not kill us? Maybe would you consider coming down and going with us to the king? And the angel of God says to Elijah, it's okay. You can, you can go with them. And what is the message there? You don't lay your hands on God's man. And God's man doesn't move unless God initiates that movement and tells him to do so. Well, right here, you have not God's man. You have God himself. And he's not moving unless it is the will of God. Powerful picture here of the control of Christ, that he is God's man, and he moves not because he is drugged to the cross, but because he will lay his life down willingly for you and for me. Look with me at verses 51 through 54. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will not at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way. So here goes Peter, ready, aim, fire, and he moves. Good old Peter. He was proud. He was impetuous. I I was (laughs) reminded, uh, Tony Evans, I heard him say once that uh, uh, Peter must have wore peppermint socks for all the ways he liked to put his foot in his mouth. Um, He was always just, he, he act first, speak first, think about it later. But here he goes. And, uh, you know, here, here's the guy who told Jesus, I'll never betray you. I, I'll go to death. And here, here he is. He's got an opportunity to prove his loyalty. I, I feel somewhat sympathetic for Peter because if you think about it, he just woke up from a long nap. And uh, when you wake up from a nap, sometimes you're a little groggy. The cobwebs aren't all there. And then all of a sudden, these guys are coming upon him to arrest him. And, and uh, he just acts very quickly. In that day, Roman historians tell us it was not uncommon for the leader of a band of men to to practice for an hour a day taking their their sword out of their sheath and they would would thrust it on top of a soldier. And if you could hit a soldier uh, at just the right spot at the weld in their helmet, you could kill a man with one single blow thrust in the right spot. And a good chance that Peter had witnessed those guys practicing their swordsmanship. But, But Peter's a fisherman and fishermen don't make good swordsmen. And uh, so he probably thinks, here's my opportunity. One commentator has said he was either uh, really bad uh, in that he missed a head, or he was really good and he only got an ear. But one of the way or the other, he pulls out his sword and he's going to go to it. You, know? you just picture the guy. Here he is. And more than likely, what makes it 
uh, a little bit silly, as most believe this was probably what he had was the killing knife um, that uh, they used to, to sacrifice the lamb. And so just a small dagger of a knife. Here he is with his little butter knife thinking he's going to take on, you know, 600 men. How silly. So here he is. He's impetuous, but he's also ignorant because what he doesn't understand is that Christ's purposes are not earthly. They're not physical. They're spiritual. And so Jesus is, is going to tell him, Peter, put the sword away. Put the silly little butter knife back in its spot. And he goes on to say, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And, and that's not, uh, it's not a call to pacifism. It's not a proof text for gun control. All he's saying there, all he's saying right there, is if you use physical violence to further your own personal agenda, you're going to face punishment. That's what he's saying. And that's true. It's true today. You use physical violence to, to push forward your own agenda, you're going to face punishment by the government. That's what he's saying to Peter. You live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And so Jesus tells Peter, you don't understand. It, it, uh, Peter, if I wanted protection, don't you know, I could call down 12 legions. That's 6,000 men comprised a legion. That's 72,000. A single, uh, just a whisper of a prayer, I could have 72,000 angels at my disposal to protect me. And Jesus tells Peter, how else? Well, this is the way it's got to be. Peter, I got to die. And he told them he was going to die. They just don't get it. They will later in Acts chapter 2. Peter's going to proclaim that Christ was handed over according to the foreknowledge of God. Later, Peter's going to get it. But he doesn't get it here. And so Jesus says, put your little sword away. You're just hindering the purpose of God. Now I got to go over and put the ear back on. It's creating all kinds of problems. Peter, just stop it. And uh, I'm reminded that Peter's, Peter's action was just a product of a process. I mean, if you remember last week, what happened? Peter thought too highly of himself, so he prayed too little, and now he's going to act too quickly. Just a product of a process. Here's a man who thought way too much of himself, so he didn't depend upon God in prayer. And when the moment arose, because he didn't depend upon God in prayer, he's going to act out of the flesh instead of the spirit. And is that not a good lesson for all of us to learn? That every morning, every day, you better get up and you better be prayed up and you better be read up in God's word. Because you have no idea what you might encounter. But I'll tell you this, if you're not prayed up and filled up by the spirit, you're probably going to act out of the flesh rather than the spirit. And you're probably going to make a mess rather than glorify Christ. Oh, it's so important that every day we begin by saying, God, fill me. So that when the moment comes, because oftentimes when the moment comes around us, just like Peter, you don't have time to stop and say, well, hey, stop right here. Let me go pray for an hour and I'll come back. You don't always have that luxury, do you? Which is all the more reason why you better make sure. And I know some of you have your devotional times at night. That's great. That's awesome. But I'm of a firm persuasion that it's early first or nothing. And I go to Lord in prayer because I know just like David said, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. David says, I don't want to presume that I have the power to face whatever's going to come at me today. So I'm going to trust in you as the day begins to fill me with your spirit. So when the moment comes and the lights turn on and I'm put in that moment and I'm in the arena and it comes upon me, I'll be filled with the spirit and not act out of my flesh. So Peter here, he's going to act out of the flesh and uh, look with me at verses 55 through 
through 56. And at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And Peter says, or Jesus says here, no, no agitation in his voice. He's just amazed. You've come at me with all these men, all these people with torches and clubs. You know, Jesus, remember, this was a guy who days earlier was putting children on his lap. Jesus was a man who lepers were not afraid to approach him. A Samaritan woman wasn't afraid to approach him. This was one of the most approachable men you'd ever meet. And every day he was teaching openly and publicly. And he asked him, well, what's the deal here? What are you doing? But then he tells him, I'll tell you exactly what you're doing. You're doing exactly what Scripture said would happen. You're fulfilling Scripture. Now, did they wake up that morning and say, we better get the clubs because Zechariah 14 says we got to... No, they just got up and they're operating in their ordinary life. But what do we know? God behind the scenes is sovereignly ordaining all these circumstances in perfect accordance with his will. Isn't it good to know as you go through life that God is not asleep at the wheel? That God is sovereign and he's actively engaged in all the circumstances that we face in life. And so all this is happening in perfect accordance with Scripture. And you're going to see that repeatedly as we walk closer and closer to the cross. All, you're going to see these words, according to Scripture. Do you see why this text, I mean, we, we, we get so familiar, we just, we just read right through this text, and if we're not careful, we'll, we'll miss the point, the point of, of going into such great detail about the circumstances and the events and telling us that it's happening in perfect accordance with Scripture is to remind us that as Jesus moves forward to, to the cross, he doesn't move forward as a helpless victim who's being drugged to the cross. He's not a, not a man who is held in the grip of dark forces. No way. We see him move move forward as a champion, as a strong man to run his course, a man who is fulfilling God's purpose for his life in perfect obedience with the word of God, a man who for the joy set before him will stand up underneath the weight of all of these trials and stand up underneath the weight of all of the beatings and put the, the crown on his head and the nails in his hands. And he will do so victoriously and confidently as the perfect lamb of God who lays down his life willingly according to God's perfect will. And even as we'll see, the last words he'll say on the cross is what? Into your hands I commit my spirit. And even at the very end we're going to be reminded that no one took his life. Jesus was not killed. He's the only one who has the ability to commit himself to God and lay down his life willingly for you and for me. The death of Christ is not just a man who got caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time. The death of Christ is necessary. You see, it, it, if somebody's going to die for the sins of man, they can't just be anybody. They got to be perfect and they got to be God. And what we will see throughout this passage is we will see the perfect lamb of God who dies for the sins of the world. 
He is perfect in his humanity. He's perfect in his deity. And as such, he's the only one qualified to die for you and me. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, listen to me. Jesus is your only hope. Unless there's somebody out there who is perfect in God, you let me know about him. But Jesus is the only way to God. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. His death is necessary. His death is voluntary. Listen, he will willingly go. The author of Hebrews, I love this, he says, for the joy set before him. Do you realize in all those beatings, in all the betrayals, in his death, the one thing that the author of Hebrews says drug him through was the joy of knowing that he was providing a way of salvation for you. Well, if that doesn't speak value and love into your life, you are completely missing it. It was not only necessary and it was not only voluntary, but it was substitutionary. Never forget as we walk through this that Jesus in all of this is bearing on his shoulder the guilt of the weight of our sin. Not his. He is perfect. In fact, on seven occasions, Judas will say, I betrayed innocent blood. Pilate will say, I find no fault in this man. Herod, nothing of worthy of death has been done by this man. Pilate's wife, you remember she's going to have a dream. Have nothing, she's going to tell Pilate, have nothing to do with that righteous man. The thief on the cross says, surely this man is innocent. We're getting what we justly deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. The Roman centurion will say, truly this man was righteous. And the Roman guard will say, surely this man is the son of God. Seven times he he will be declared perfectly innocent. This is perfect man, perfectly God, dying not for his sins, but dying for yours because it was the, the only way. You know, I can't give my inheritance to my children, all that I am, all that I hope to bestow upon them, I can't give to them until something happens. What's got to happen? I got to die. Now, the author of Hebrews says that a covenant doesn't take full effect until the covenant maker dies. For God to fulfill his promises to the Jews, for God to fulfill his promises to man of reconciling them to himself, the covenant maker must die die. So the second member of the Trinity puts on humanity, comes to this earth, lives a perfect and sinless life, and he dies a substitutionary death to provide a way of salvation for you and me. One commentator has said, on the cross, the covenant maker becomes the covenant breaker so that the covenant breakers could become covenant keepers. Isn't that good? So the more and more we read through this, I pray you see And you wouldn't think, oh, that poor man caught up in a bad deal. No, as we walk through this, I pray you would say, surely this man is the son of God. What a savior who would die for me. Let's pray together. Father, we are so overwhelmed by your love. What kind of love is this? Oh, how great a love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called his children. Lord, we are overwhelmed by your mercy and your grace. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they would see the beauty and the wonder of your love. That you came willingly, 
and voluntarily to die as a substitute for their sin. Lord, I pray that their eyes would be open to the depth of their sin and they would see the beauty of their Savior and they would run to you and know your salvation. Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would stand in awe and wonder again of who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that we've been bought with a price. We're not our own. God, I pray that in light of what you've done, we'd give ourselves willingly back to you. And our heart would be the same as Christ. Not our will, but yours be done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.